It is time, Spencer. The oh. time is now? Halloween time. And you know what? We were going to just have our normal episode we were recording, but since we have a special episode today, we are not able to do our Edgar Allan Potos that we talked about. Well, we wouldn't have because we're going to be recording on Sunday because we got a guest on, and since he lives all the way in Spain, we have to record like 10 in the morning, <laughs> which means that's not a great time to be drinking absinthe. Why not? <laughs> you'll, you'll find out. You never had it. So What else you got to do on a Sunday? All right. So I decided we'll record this now and just put it at the beginning of the episode, and then we'll release it on Halloween. It'll be great for everybody. So the Potoast, um, usually what I do... I have like a fancy robe on today, so I feel you do not. underdressed. The one time. The one goddamn time. But what I like to do is read some of my favorite Poe stories throughout the season, which I've already done. And then I like to read some of my favorite Poe poems. And that's what I do. It's not like, I'm not like the Poe toaster, you know. Like, mm. It's such a waste. You get like a bottle of Hennessy, take like one shot or something, and then you put the bottle at his grave and leave it there for some bums to come steal oh, later. Yeah, right? And then like three roses or flowers of some sort. That's what the Poe toaster traditionally is done as far as i know they never found out who the guy was that did that but just for the dpw's sake i'll read one of my favorite poe poems i take take it that was his uh drink of choice was the hennessy he liked absinthe and brandy and i think specifically hennessy brandy but anyway i will read one of my favorite this is a shorter one one of my favorite poe poems the spooky poem for the season and then we'll we'll toast with our delicious absinthe drink that i did not put way too much absinthe in, and uh, the clandestine absinthe, which is pretty strong. And I'm really interested to see the face you make when you drink that. <laughs> As you've noted, it's a very milky color. <laughs> yeah. And there's only two ingredients in that, absinthe and water. I did not put the sugar cube in it, because I didn't have my fancy spoon. Without further ado, uh, this poem, Spencer... As I said, I don't think I've ever read this on the air, but it is one of my favorites. Spirits of the Dead by Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know. You you haven't read any Poe. No. At all? Not even stories? Nothing? No. What the fuck are you doing, man? What are you doing with your life? Not a goddamn thing, apparently. (sighs) I don't feel like reading because I drank some of the absinthe. I'm telling you, like... Makes it, it everything dries out instantly. As long as it doesn't like the 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 kind that we got from that convention one time, and it just no, turned we me into made the, that, and yeah. it was poison. <laughs> yeah, that's why it was super bitter. This isn't bitter at all. It kind of well, tastes well, like licorice. Well, no, I mean, but that one turned me made me feel like I was the ghost rider. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still have that over there that's been fermenting for years now, so we can try that after if you want off no. air. So when you die, no one will hear it. So, spirits of the dead by Edgar Allan Poe. Thy soul shall find itself alone, mid dark thoughts of the gray tombstone, not one of all the crowd to pry into thine hour of secrecy. Be silent in that solitude, which is not loneliness, for then the spirits of the dead who stood in life before thee are again, in death around thee, and their will shall overshadow thee, be still. The night, though clear, shall frown, and the stars shall look not down. From their high thrones in the heaven, with light like hope to mortals given, but their red orbs without beam, to thy weariness shall seem, as a burning and a fever, which would cling to thee forever. Now are thoughts thou shalt not banish, now are visions never to vanish. From thy spirits shall they pass, no more like dewdrops from the grass. 
The breeze, the breath of God, is still, and the mist upon the hill, shadowy, shadowy, yet unbroken, is a symbol and a token, how it hangs upon the trees, a mystery of mysteries. We shall toast nice. Mr. Poe for that glorious poem. Ooh. Interesting, isn't it? You weren't expecting that. It's like, it's not overpowering like you would think. But it's because it has a very strong, pungent, it's like a licorice uh, smell. It's kind of like a watered down, like nyquilly, <laughs> medicinal. Kind of, yeah. It's herbal. I think this is the word you're looking Maybe. for. Maybe. What I like to do, which I actually had one last night, because I just couldn't help myself, I had to bust out the absinthe early, which I'm gonna have to finally break down and order a cup. They're like a hundred bucks. At least they were like five years ago when I got these bottles. Mm. So I'm going to have to break down the orders, because you have to special order them. Because the only absinthe they have at the liquor stores around here, like, the lucid and just, like, shitty ones I don't want to try. So I have to special order those, but last night what I did, I have... Oh, I can't remember the name of that. You probably can't see the bottle from here. Let me just look. So one of my one of my favorite liqueurs is Dom Benedictine, mm. and it is a herbal liqueur, and I used to... Just because I like the taste of it, because it's really sweet, because, you know, liqueur, it's like a sugary, uh, it's a mixer, pretty much, they get to mix it with stuff, but I used to just put it straight with ice and maybe a little water to dilute it, and you could just drink it like that, uh, but since this one's been sitting here for a while, I tasted it, and it was, like, really sweet. Yeah. It was, like, melted syrup sweet, like, mm. like, like, uh, simple syrup, so I, which is another drink I usually, uh, I used to do. Preferably not with the good absinthe, like when I'd have like a cheaper absinthe I would use, I would mix like one part that with two parts absinthe and then put some water in and it makes your head kind of melt, <laughs> but not like in a burning way. It's weird. It's like, I would imagine what like eating a pound of dry ice would be like, like it just <laughs> it like sucks the moisture out of your head and it causes it to melt from the inside, but in a pleasant way. Was you uh, having like a uh, flashbacks from like reading like a... Uh... Fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. Like, is that, is that the closest you ever get to have one of those experiences? Maybe. Just quite possibly. Uh, but what also what's interesting, we'll end on this, what I find with the absinthe, because it's so strong, you can't, like that drink, like you had a shot of it. Yeah. I actually have a full big gl absinthe glass of it. I can't, you can't just pound those. Yeah, you have to baby that. Even like cocktails, like you even have like a Jack, you could pound those, but even like a good Manhattan or an old fashioned or something, which is my go-to drinks at home. I drink those quick because, you know, they taste good and they go down quick. But this, you can't, like, this. No. It's just. You couldn't yeah. chug that. No, you throw up. And even though absinthe is really high proof alcohol, I just find you always stay, because you can't drink it quick. You just kind of stay in, like, pre buzz state yeah. where you're happy and mellow. And I find it really helps when I'm writing. Like, I did there a lot of go. editing last night and I was just like, ooh, nice, smooth, baby, smooth. You drink it in like three hours, mm -hmm. just ah. go by. So I understand why Edgar Allan Poe was a fan of the absinthe. The brandy just get drunk. Yeah, and that's just that's a good fun. But anyway, um, we actually do have a great episode today. We have our good friend Nick Obregon. He's coming all the way from Spain. Not coming. He's gonna be on uh, Zoom or Google. What is the Hangouts? Hangouts. Google Hangouts. Whatever we pick, I don't know. Um, so he'll be on. It's a it's a six hour time difference. Yeah. So, because I was originally going to, we were going to do it Saturday, and I was like, well, what's the difference? Because I remember when we had uh, British Ash on, it was like five hours. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the same. It's not six. And I was like, that's a pretty good chunk of the day. Yeah. And he's a busy man, and he has a lot to talk about, so we're going to have him on, and uh, 
think you folks will really enjoy that episode. Well, this episode. I keep forgetting we're recording this early. Yeah. So, after this wonderful space music, you can enjoy that. Listening to the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb James. With me today, I didn't give you a name, did I? Yeah, I don't think you did. Spencer, the Bolivian Burger Bandit Church. Yay. Um, <laughs> and today we got a special guest. Uh, oh, this is going to be a long, because now you got a lot of work here. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the writer of the Inspector Iwata trilogy, which uh, is uh, Blue Light Yokohama, Sins of Scarlet, and Unknown Mail. I highly recommend you folks check out all of those. And the new true crime podcast that you, you definitely want to listen to, Faceless. We have with us today, Mr. Nicholas Obergon. How are you doing today, Nick? Well, good to speak with you guys. Doing good. How are you? Good. Well, good. Yeah, it's definitely been a while. I'm trying to think when the because we were recording in my giant kitchen. Yes. With terrible mm-hmm. microphones and Apache helicopters <laughs> always fl- flying <laughs> overhead when you were first on. I don't remember when that was. Like years ago. Yeah, because yeah, you've been here for almost yeah. two years, right? I think so, yeah. And I was trying to remember if that was, if you were our actual first interview we did on here. You might have been. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, it's an honor to be back, man. Yeah. Now you guys have you cut, you've come so far. You know, it's full circle. <laughs> I think the uh, the most entertaining thing you've done of recent, because off air we were discussing how I was very surprised about how much work you actually put into this new podcast, Faceless. Mm-hmm. So do you want to just give the folks a quick overview without spoiling anything, but we probably will just a spoiler warning. We probably will spoil some things for you, but just want to give them an overview real quick. So the podcast is called Faceless. It's out with USG, which is universal. Uh, It's seven part. And it's essentially about a family in suburban Tokyo who don't have any enemies. And in the year 2000, just before New Year's Eve, a man, faceless man, roll credits, uh, enters the house and murders them all, which is weird enough anyway. But then he stays in the house in a kind of like nightmarish Goldilocks way and kind of makes himself at home. He leaves behind a ton of evidence um, and then just walks out the front door and is never seen again. So this is kind of the biggest case in Japan or one of, still unsolved. And it was so weird that I had to kind of bring this story to the English speaking world, uh, which is what we're doing here. I found after listening to the podcast, which is what, seven episodes, mm-hmm. I was so infuriated because there's so much evidence. <laughs> Why do we not have the killer? Like, how, do, no. how has he not been captured? But how did the actual podcast come about? Like, was this something you just always wanted to do? Or did you reach out to some people to see if it was a good idea? How did Faceless come about? So Faceless, so the, the, Faceless is based on the Miyazawa family murders or the Setagaya murders as they're known in Japan because it happened in Satagaya. Um, and they, this case kind of influenced my first book or very loosely inspired it. In Blue Light Yokohama, the first Iwata book, uh, Inspector Iwata is given the case of an entire family that's murdered in their home. And then reasons, reasons, reasons. Now in the book, obviously he, you know, spoiler, he solves it. In real life, that didn't happen. But when I wrote that book, I was always kind of just like, yeah, this would be a cool idea. And I wrote the book, then I got an agent then I got a bunch of publishing deals, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the horse had bolted, and this was a real thing that was happening. And it always felt a bit weird, man, because the, the, these were real people. A real thing happened to them, 
And it kind of felt like I was a bit profiting from that. Now, I know all books are basically that, but I always kind of felt like there was a, a debt to them. And so when the pandemic hit and I was kind of spinning around in my chair, I thought, I want to go back and tell this story, but this time, not fictionalized. This time, look at what really happened and why it is, as you say, how can it be with 16,000 pieces of evidence, with DNA, with hair, with the murder weapon, with his clothes? You know, how can it be that that guy is just still in the wind? So that's kind of the central question of the podcast is, how can all of this be and yet he's still free? Which rhymes. <laughs> Did you worry there'd be any kind of like ethical ramifications when you started diving into, like especially when you started interviewing people for the podcast? Because now you're dealing with possibly opening old wounds for the victim's family mm -hmm. and anyone that was involved in this. And even to a degree like the police department who right. I'm because you said in the podcast they're still watching the house, right? So yeah. they're still very much invested. And I would imagine it'd be like a big failure a big uh, asterisk on their record because they haven't solved this murder yet. Yeah, look, it was, it was, um, honestly, it was a scary thing, man. I mean, you know, as you know, I'm a guy who works in the world of fiction, and which is a safe space usually, you know. Um, you might have people say what you've done is shit, and that's about as big yeah. as you <laughs> um, I can roll with that punch. Someone saying this is my life, that's different, you know, and so... Yeah, there was definitely a concern of, you know, opening up. Once It was more once I realized this thing got the green light and once I realized this thing was going to happen, then you start to ask yourself kind of like, oh, shit, should I be doing this, you know? Um, up until that point when you're pitching it, you just think, well, whatever, because yeah. it's not even a thing. But um, when we looked into it, we kind of saw that the surviving relatives, they all, they all want this case solved. They all want, you know, the, the worst thing that's happened to them has already happened. And so, yeah, I'm sure nobody was thrilled that like a white guy is coming over and being like, so explain this to me, right? But ultimately the, the, the bottom line is this guy has to pay. And if one of the possibilities is he left the country that same day, the next day, whatever, and that explains how the Tokyo police haven't found him, it's right. he's just gone. Then bringing this podcast to other countries, to the English speaking world, um, and without spoilers, there are kind of clues that connect the you know the US and maybe Europe to the killer then how then ultimately even if it does open up fresh wounds uh, or old wounds then it, that's a price worth paying if one person knows one thing ultimately so usually that's how these things get solved is you just have yeah, one person yeah. come forward who knows the the answer that it's eluded everyone so, because I think like a lot of Dateline shows, that's how those things get it, solved. It takes like one piece yeah. of evidence or something to blow the case open. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And you know, from from cops I've spoken to, you know, a lot of the time uh, these men and women they know who did it, they know what happened. But one thing is knowing, and another thing is being able to show a chain of evidence. And so, when someone comes along and says, "Yeah, I saw that," now all of a sudden the cops are like, "Great, now we can actually we now we have a witness, and now we can go ahead with it." You know, so. It was kind of like, if, if it's not my call to make, that's that's one conversation. But at the same time, the TMPD have had 22 years and 16,000 pieces of evidence, and they're still no closer to catching this guy. So, you know, if if, if I'm not the guy to bring this to the English-speaking world, who is? Yeah, or why we just say, it's too awkward, so we leave it. I couldn't accept that. It was really strange that, like you mentioned about bringing it to the English-speaking world, we haven't heard of this murder when 
because we were discussing like the cultural significance of this off air mm-hmm. in Japan. It's like Tokyo is considered one of the safest, if not the safest major city in the world. These kind mm-hmm. of murders just don't happen. I mean, if you really think about it, that's it's an irregular murder in, you know, like the U.S. or somewhere. So let alone mm-hmm. a place like Japan. So how has this changed the society over there? Because I would imagine at one point, you know, it, it was like the old time. Uh, you think like the U.S. in the 50s. We don't lock our doors. We don't worry about our neighbors, that kind of thing. But now there's such a heinous crime with no answer, no reason, no motivation that anyone knows of. Uh, so how has that changed things? I mean, I think like you say, maybe, you know, one of the good things about life uh, over there. Um, you know, one of the many good things is that statistically, you know, you're more likely to to die taking a selfie than you are to be murdered, right? So, so it is a safe society. This kind of thing, like you say, doesn't just happen. So, when it does happen, especially for the people in that area, you know, that changes things. That that's a before and after. The weird guy in the park was just a weird guy in the park, but now. Is he the weird guy in the park who's killed two kids? You know, so mm-hmm. I think there is a kind of before and after moment. Also, the timing of it is wild because it's coming up to New Year's Eve of a new millennium. You know, and so like it's it's still you're in the year two thousand. You 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 know we're still in this kind of new age just by the calendar. So I think it was kind of a very scary uh, before and after moment for society at large. And we say in the podcast we speak to a journalist who was out there. And he said, look, there was no news at that time because everybody's on holiday. It's a slow news day anyway. This would have dominated the headlines at any time, let alone in this kind of quiet holiday period where everyone's at home, everyone's with their family. And now they have to contend with the idea that so were these people. You know, these people were minding their own business too. Um, and somebody came in with a knife and said, I have to destroy you for reasons unknown, <laughs> which is the wildest thing of all, for reasons unknown. Yeah, that was, I think, the most in like i don't want to say ridiculous but just it's because you brought up multiple examples on faceless of not speculation but just like the theories of who could have done this crime and each one is so plausible yep. from the character not the character <laughs> thinking like a fiction writer yeah. uh, from, <laughs> from the murderer's actions and how long they were in this house what they did to the family and what most telling of all what they did after the murders yeah. it it almost seems like a person who didn't care at all and didn't have any um, real motivation. Like it wasn't right. like they were trying to rob them and get a lot of money. Um, you brought up the hitman scenario, but that, I mean, that that doesn't seem to play because that's the sloppiest hitman in the world. Right. Right. <laughs> Unless they were purposely trying to frame someone out. Like there's just so many right. possible scenarios and none of them seem to have led us anywhere. Like what I thought was really interesting, the Japanese law system is very different than the U.S. law mm-hmm. system. So when people listen to your podcast, they might get really irritated. Like, well, why can't they just do this with the DNA? Or why yeah. can't they test it? You can't do it. The laws are different. And I think a lot yeah. of U.S. listeners don't realize that, you know, in yeah. Japan, because I think even in Japan, they, they could just hold you for no reason, right? Like they could do things like that. Uh, for certain they can, they can well, so it can't be for no reason, but they can hold you for 23 days without charging you. Yeah. Wow. So if I get in a bar fight, let's say, and if I bust a glass and if I punch a guy, those are two two offenses, right? I've damaged the property and I hit the guy. So now that's 48 days, right? Or you know that they can, or 46 days that they can hold me for. After 46 days in a cell without charge, if they say, "Did you do the thing?" I'm going to say, "Fuck yeah, I did the thing." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So it's very different, man. Very different. It looks similar in many ways, but the legal system is a different beast altogether. Well, you mentioned in the podcast that, especially when in regard to like the DNA stuff, they're working on changing the laws. But just with the bureaucracy and everything over there, like the red tape, it just takes forever to make any kind of change, which is like even here. Yeah. But what, how would you feel for one if like just your little mini investigation here kind of led them to making that change and possibly finding the killer? You know, we talk about the eth- ethical ramifications here. I, that definitely would make it worth it, in my opinion. Yeah, man. I mean, look, it's. You know, you, you kind of get into this kind of back to the future scenario where you start thinking about like, essentially, if you become God in your own universe, you make one change and, and, and it leads to immeasurable, you know, uh, ramifications, let alone changing the law, you know. I mean, look, if that were to come about and they were to catch this guy, then ultimately, if in any way this work has contributed to that, then... I'd be obviously delighted with it. I mean, I'm always kind of, you know, you read about this a lot in America where somebody loses their kid and uh, they're obviously so destroyed by this. Then they start putting into place like Megan's law or this law or that law. And you think like, I understand it, right? I'd want to do that too. But then what do you do for a living, man? You work in a factory. What do you know about jurisprudence? What do you know about legislation? You know, what do you know about the law? Have you ever looked at the criminal justice system? Maybe it shouldn't be me who's, you know, Mm. getting involved in new laws and stuff. But so, I mean, look, it would be kind of one of those things where I think on one side it would be great that that's happened. My worry would be like, shit, maybe maybe we shouldn't have done this. But I think so long as it's limited to only in cases of, like, murder, are they going to use your DNA to look for you? I kind of think, like, if your DNA is at a murder scene and it rules you in, then maybe you should have a, a case to answer, right? right um, yeah. Obviously, if you've stolen a bike, then let's not change the laws for that. In this case, this guy murdered two kids and, and, and a family, right? And then he just ate their ice cream. If the law has to change, I think this is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. happens, man. That's a reasonable change. Because I know that was like, listening especially those last couple episodes, like that was like the frustrating part. Like if you just, you may even, like even say if you couldn't catch the guy, you'd be closer. You could probably rule some people out or something. I'd be so upset if I was the family, like if I was the surviving family members and like there was this course of avenue you could go, but you just don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and that's what the chief, uh, so he was retired by the time we spoke to him. But I mean, you know, he led that case for years. And, And that's what, He's trying to get the law changed as well. Like we, we obviously we see it from the same angle. And he was saying, I understand people are worried about their privacy, but what about the privacy of the two kids and the and the two parents? Where's their privacy? Yeah, that's gone. You know, so why should his privacy override theirs? The only reason that podcast was ever made was because I knew who they were because they have no privacy, right? So, so yeah, man, it's like it's it's um. I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I'd be delighted, but at the same time, I kind of I think it would. It would be such a kind of big thing that it would be like I can't, I can't, I can't think right. about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> then run down the line, you start to lose it. Well, I just know from listening to the podcast myself, every episode I started just doing my own research, just out of interest. But well, right. you know, what horror movies were popular in Japan at the time? Were there any kind of yeah. murders that could that this was based off of? Or, you know, just stupid things like that. But if I'm doing that, I could imagine many, many other people out there especially ones with more free time are doing that, which is ideally what you want because now instead of just focusing on the police department, you actually have citizens who 
you don't want vigilantes, but yeah. people that can, you know, find like you brought up the one blogger who's just he was just a journalist who was interested in the case and he found out a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. And I would like to make it clear for anybody that listens to your podcast and might be overly critical of the Japanese police. I mean, in the U.S., you still have like the John Benet Ramsey case and things like yeah. that that are unsolved. So you can't just say like simple DNA or simple things like this will just fix it and that will get our killer. There's obviously a lot that even you, after your investigation, you're not told and you don't know. Um, though I did think it was kind of fun how in like on the podcast you get into some sketchy scenarios like you ended up on a military u.s military base and like how did stuff like that come about was that pre-planned or you're just like ah this is just where it's leading me so i'm just gonna go check this out um yeah kind of a kind of a bit of both i mean actually so just to backtrack quickly on the dna thing yeah like i would 100 echo uh not criticizing the japanese police i mean do, do I think it's possible somebody messed up early on and that, that mistake has been passed down the years? Yeah, maybe, probably. Um, mistakes happen, right? They also, because they don't have those uh, that murder rate that we do have in the UK or in the US, I don't think that they had 22 years ago the level of experience or exposure to this kind of crime to begin with. So it stands to reason that they wouldn't maybe have a billion protocols in place and blah, blah, blah. I, I, but what I can say is I know firsthand that they have worked this case they have tried and just on the numbers alone they put thousands and thousands of men and women on this case so they, they want to find the guy to be clear on the dna just if someone hasn't heard uh, the podcast or heard about the case the killer leaves his dna in the house he leaves it everywhere his blood his feces his saliva his hair um the clothes he's wearing he he, he leaves them a treasure trove of evidence now, it's not that the Tokyo police can't use his DNA. The problem comes in that they can only use the DNA one for one. So if the killer is not on the DNA database for criminals, for offenders, then that DNA is as far as it goes. So what they have to then wait for is to arrest the guy for another crime, and then they can link it, and then they go, oh, this is the guy who killed the family. Up until that point, essentially, until he gets arrested for something else, and he's put on the database for something else, that DNA is as far as it goes. In America or in the UK or in many places, even if he's not on the database, they could say, okay, well, he's not on the list, but maybe we can try and build a profile, a picture of this guy by looking at the genealogy websites, right? Or by doing familial DNA or, or by, you know, trying to see, oh, okay, well, we found his third cousin. So now like the Golden State Killer, we can narrow down, blah, blah, blah. That's what they're not allowed to do in Japan. So essentially, if it's not one for one, the DNA can't be used. And that's what they're trying to campaign to, to make the change on because frankly after 22 years this guy hasn't popped up on a traffic offense right or for burgling someone's house he's not going to pop he's not stupid clearly right or yeah. he's well, <laughs> you know that's so um yeah so just to get that out of the way because I, I i kind of try and make it clear in the podcast i'm not having a go at them um but at the same time if, if a mistake is made mm. i'm not going to say oh, no big deal right like th these things happen so well you brought um, up a really good point there is no precedent in japan for this kind of murder whereas in like right. the u.s there's been so many crazy murders you know throughout our history that something's right. on record and there's kind of a basis for how you handle things but you know the first time something that major happens or one of the first times you don't really have a set, you know, a precedence for how you would handle it. So right. if there were mistakes made, it's kind of understandable, especially at the time yeah. period oh, yeah. too. Totally. Well, and, and, and you can easily imagine, I mean, you know, a cop 
in, in New York or a cop in London, you walk into the crime scene, you see the murder weapon, fingerprints, DNA, the guy's clothes, you think, oh, well, we're going to catch this guy soon. It's going to be a matter of time. Because look how much evidence he's left behind, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense that he would be really sloppy in the house and make all these mistakes in the house. But then he becomes Jason Bourne when he walks out the door. Yeah. That, that's a disconnect, right? Um, so I can kind of see, like you say, how 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 they would uh, how they would get there. In terms of this case, I mean, yeah, look, the, obviously there have been murders uh, down the years, but it, the numbers aren't anywhere comparable. I mean, if you look at the the two conviction rates in the U.S., sixty percent of homicides are cleared. So that still leaves uh, a shitload of murderers mm-hmm. walking around going for a beer, mowing their lawn, right? In Japan, the conviction rate is 99.99999%. Does that mean they only convict guilty people? Probably not, right? Yeah. But it shows you the difference in... So you can imagine how they walked in thinking, we're going to fucking get this guy. You imagine, like you say, so the chief who we speak to, you know, that guy has seen murders before. He's seen serious crimes before. He'd never seen a situation. And, I mean, this didn't go into the podcast because we couldn't, kind of get into the full graphic detail of everything that happened in the house because, uh, you know, people get upset. And they're real people, too. That's real victims. It's not, like, imaginary. You know, it's not fiction. So you go into those details, you know, somebody's, you know, parent or relative of the the victim could read that or hear it. Totally, totally. And that that was kind of one of the things I wanted to be clear about was that I never wanted to fetishize or kind of dramatize um, the the crimes themselves because there are other podcasts where they get into this kind of pornographic enjoyment of all the terrible things that happen. And, it, you know, it's just it's just like a slasher horror movie, man. And, and and that's fine for what it is, but but when it's a real family, that's not my, that's not my jam. But, yeah, so this this chief, he, he goes into the house. And one of the things that's not in the podcast is that the, the, the mum's face, she'd been stabbed beyond the point of recognition. So even though he knew who she was, the, the, there was no face, right? Her brain was coming out. Oh. So if you're that guy... Right. On the one hand, you think we're going to catch this man. But on the other hand, you think, Jesus, he must have, you know, there must have been a reason to do this. Right. So that's the disconnect. It's if he's just a random killer, why does he hate her so much? Why is there such a level of violence if it's not personal? Right. If it is personal, that means he has to know her. And if he knows her, that means there's a relationship. And if there's a relationship, they're going to catch him because that there's a clue in itself. So it just doesn't make sense, man. It's like you take a step forward, you, you, you take a you take a step, you take a step back, and that's kind of part of the reason why we call it more of a, like it, yeah, it's a mystery, yeah, it's a cold case, but it's also really a paradox because there are just all these theories, like we say, and they kind of all go somewhere, but then end up going nowhere. The, the military base and how it gets made. So very briefly, yeah, like I say, I wanted to I wanted to do a non-fiction version of this. I wanted to explore it for real. Initially, I was thinking about a documentary, and we ended up going with the idea of a podcast because it was the middle of a lockdown, or just in fact, I think it had just begun. So I recorded a little demo with my buddy, who's a producer anyway. So we got it sounding good. Made like an eight-minute demo, and initially, I was just like, like you say, I thought I was just gonna be the narrator, just read facts about the case and be like, weird, right? And leave it at that. Uh, but the but the, um, the studio said, no, we want you to kind of be actively involved. We want you to be interactively involved. Turn right? you into <laughs> an investigator. <laughs> you know, and I was like, wait, so you want me to try and catch the guy? They're like, yeah, yeah, try and catch him. I was like, I work from home, man. Yeah. 
<laughs> like I'm not a detective, I'm not a journalist. So, and that's kind of where the the the, the idea of actually speaking to the detectives and and the, the family members and experts kind of comes from. In terms of the kind of the situations where we end up on the military base uh, or just outside it, it was kind of like the producer was like, well, "Why don't you show me where it is?" So, all right. We'll go to the edge, and he's like, "All right, let's get out and do some recording." And I'm like, "Well, okay. Okay, we can do that, I guess." You know, um, and then you kind of see the cars in the distance. You're like, "I think we should probably go." So, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's it, making a podcast like that, where it's kind of like listening to a documentary, but just obviously only audio form. You you try and make it seem like you're learning stuff, um, even if you already know this stuff and you've known it for years, right? So you try and hold hands with the listener. To be like, hmm, weird, maybe it could be this, even if I know it's bullshit, right? Even if I know for 10 reasons, it can't be that. You have to pretend to be like, oh, so I'm going to see where this leads kind of thing. So, yeah, it's kind of a lot of um, kind of Hollywood trickery going in there, but it got made. So there we go. So you did the, you wrote the script for this, right? This wasn't just like outlined. You did a full script and did you do a storyboard for this as well? Yeah. So essentially what it was, it was kind of like, um, it was kind of like a collaboration between the producer and then me writing the script because he obviously kind of was an expert in the in the medium of uh, audio and podcasts and i'm not right like i would probably end up writing it kind of a, of a more kind of journalistic style yeah. like, rather than just punchy little bits of sound and um so we would sit down with the script and i would kind of write the thing and say this is kind of what i want to say and then he'd go over it and be like this is how we have to repackage this this is why we have to get rid of that type of thing so yeah it was basically me and him writing the script but of course, if I'm narrating it, it has to sound like me, right? Like if he writes just what he thinks, it doesn't sound like me. When I'm just reading it in front of the mic, it's already off-putting, you know? So, yeah. so there was that. The, the also, the other part was that the production company, uh, so not Universal, but the actual team who were putting it together, who I worked with, they were from the UK. So a lot of the time when changes would be made to the, to the, to the script, it would be with a UK voice. And I'm saying, like, you know, the, the, the single mum in Alabama who's driving her kids to school is not going to know what that means. Yeah. Right? So let's try and, like, Americanify it a bit so that it kind of becomes, like, universal. So, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Also, another thing I was wondering, like, how much literary flourish do you put into a script like that? Because, like, the way this is, this is more like a dateline kind of thing, so it's not over the yeah. top by any means. But I just know from, uh, like, other true crime podcasts, or just any, like, um, even uh, certain fiction podcasts I listen to and stuff where they're talking about different myths and stuff that's already established. They always want to add their own flair to it, and they really yeah. punch up, and they have this overly done script that, you know, depending on who's doing it could be good. But do you ever did you have any problems with, like, oh, I got to tone this down, or I need this to uh, sound a little more real? Yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of it was kind of counterintuitive because, you know, I mean, me, you, all of us here are, are kind of, you know, in the world of stories and fiction, right? So your your natural instinct is to be like, this is why it's a great story and, and let me pull up threads that make it a great story. And you kind of, you, you have to stop yourself doing that because like you say, they are real, they, they are real people. The, the story element here is, is the cake is already baked 22 years ago. So me putting my little flourish on it, it, it's kind of like a disservice to them. Like, even if it's a perfect line, it's like, okay, that's a very nice line, but that's not why we're here. You yeah. Know what I mean? So yeah, there was quite a lot of reining in my natural instincts. I mean, the only time um, I kind of allowed myself a little bit of poetry 
is when I'm describing a place, right? I'm standing in the middle of Tokyo. I can hear this, blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, then you actually hear those sound effects anyway. So, you, again, you don't even need to go that far because you want it to be kind of immersive. In the last episode where we kind of talk about the impact of this crime and we kind of we sum it up and we talk about the family, that the, the kind of the final paragraph was probably the most kind of writerly paragraph there where I start talking about, you know, where these people would be now if this didn't happen, the impact of the case, why this guy has to be caught. It's kind of really the only time, that final paragraph, where my feelings as a writer come out, you know. Mm. Uh, the rest of the time I just try and sound like a, like a Dateline presenter, you know, like a journalist, basically. So, yeah, it was weird, man, because you, you, you're kind of swimming against the current, you know. Um, so it was kind of like a, a new experience for me. But at the same time, when you hear it back, that's the beauty of the podcast. When you hear the audio back, you know right away if it's right or if it's wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is something that when you're reading your own book back to you, I think sometimes you can't see the, the, the wood for the trees. Because you think, I think it sounds good, you know. Whereas audio just takes no prisoners, man. You're just like, no, that sounds shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely did a good job of respecting the victims. Because like I said, I've listened to other podcasts, like True Crime Podcasts. Mm -hmm. And even if you watch Dateline a lot of the time, they punch it up so much with the narration yeah. and the writing that it makes it seem like it's not real people anymore. Yeah. They get yeah. they t well. I mean, it's their job to turn it into entertainment, but these are still people who were murdered. Yeah, like yeah. you want to entertain yeah. the audience, but you really have to toe that fine line of not making a spectacle out of it. You still have to respect mm -hmm. what happened because it was a grisly murder. It ruined people's lives. Uh, yeah. I'm sure there's people in the police department who have worked for 22 years on this case. And this yeah. is the one thing that probably haunts them. So you really well, did a good the, job the, of that, in my opinion. Is, I, and I appreciate that, man, because that was the one kind of brief I had was I, I, I never want to lose sight of the fact that this is their story, not his story. And that's the thing that really pisses me off. And look, if it's a crime novel, right, or if it's a movie, I don't give a shit. I'm, I, you know, I write crime novels. I love that. But when we're dealing with, you know, uh, a documentary, or when we're dealing with a podcast that's to do with real people, and they kind of glorify this kind of Jack the Ripper figure, and wow, he's so amazing in this. Ultimately, the guy who did this is not going to be remarkable. He's going to be a shitty little person, right, who had problems or whatever it was, right? He's not going to be a, a crime genius. He's not going to be Hannibal Lecter. And so the idea that we kind of, like, yeah, we have to kind of drag the audience in and say, isn't this weird? But when it actually comes to writing the, the, the episodes, it, for me, it was about the family first and the guy second. Now, obviously, we have to look at what he did and why he did that. But to me, he wasn't the whole ball game. And, and, and so for me, as far as I'm concerned, the, the fact that I wrote my first book loosely based on what happened to them, as far as I'm concerned, they kind of they changed my life one way or another. Mm -hmm. And so this, to me, was an opportunity to pay back that debt. And OK, we're probably not going to catch the guy. We haven't caught the guy. But just to, to, to say, all right, if I've if I've lent on their story, at least I want to put their story out there to try and fucking help them, you know, to try and to try and catch this guy, man. So I'm glad you came away with that because that was my one main goal was to to do right by them and not to be like, and then her insides were pulled out. Yeah. And then he wrote them, you know, that's that wasn't the that wasn't the jam. Which is kind of depressing because a lot of people do listen to those like kind of podcasts or dateline because they want those gory details. Yeah. They want to, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix situation. Yeah. They want to see these victims get gutted and murdered, but they're those are real people. 
That's why that yeah. kind of stuff turns me off. But, you know, guests each their own. But one thing that I really found most interesting about this whole case was this guy committed such a brutal and what seemed like a personal attack and then just not only disappeared, but people who can are capable of something like that, you I would say most of the time would do it again or something similar or it has a history yeah, of crime. Wouldn't, this wouldn't be his one incident and then yeah. nothing ever again. So unless he just died or something, it's I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to think that he would do it again. Even if he left the country, you know, something would happen somewhere else. 100%. 100%. And I mean, look, that was, you know, it doesn't take Columbo to work out if you're prepared to kill four human beings, including two babies, right, two kids, then you're willing to do other bad things, right? And like you say, what what are the odds? I mean, number one, when I spoke to, um, you know, a psychiatrist about this, a forensic or a criminal or an, an investigative psychiatrist, he was saying the odds that this guy just did this one fine day out of the blue with no previous behavior is pretty low. I mean, is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. But it's more likely he built up to this with other violent offending and kind of this was, you know, where he wanted to get to. Once he does get there and he doesn't get caught, the likelihood that he never does it again. I mean, Hollywood often likes to say uh, as like a truism that if you've killed more than one person, you just don't stop until you're caught. This guy said, look, it's, it's there are lots of people, right, who, you know, one they get into an argument with their girlfriend in the 70s. They kill her. They don't mean to kill her. It just happened, right? They they get rid of her body. They're so scared. They never commit another crime again, right? They just live out their life as a normal citizen. That's the thing that does happen, right? Someone with one dark secret who's a good guy for the rest of his life. Now, this guy's killed a whole family, man, with a sushi knife. Um, and then he hangs out and eats ice cream. You know, then he goes on their computer. Then he takes a shit in their toilet. I mean, how how likely he never does another violent attack in his life is probably very low. The other thing is that the police say he was anywhere between the age of 15 on the night of the murder and early 20s, which would mean that if I'm 38, he could be younger than me right now. So he's if he is dead, it's not going to be of old age. right? If he's alive, I don't think it's possible that he's somewhere in Japan as their most wanted criminal, just like living up a mountain somewhere. Yeah. If he's in Japan, he's probably dead. Or he left. Right. And of course, if they're looking in Japan and he's not in Japan, it doesn't matter how many cops you put on the case, you're not going to get it. But if he if he has left, the odds of him having hurt other people is probably quite high. And then we're assuming that the police in Thailand or Canada or wherever this guy is are sharing that data with Interpol. And that Interpol has fed that back to the cops in Tokyo for them to make a match. If that happened, then you'd have an international man up and the rest of it. But stuff falls through the cracks, man. Like yeah. cops make mistakes. Like I make mistakes as a writer. It happens. So I don't know. It's it's it all goes back to the central mystery of the the paradox of this guy. Who is he? Well, just to speculate for a moment, I don't think that a guy who committed a crime like that, like you said, if he was still in Japan, one, if he if he did die, it probably wasn't of natural causes. Um, so unless he was involved again, if he stayed in Japan, unless he was either like homeless or involved with the Yakuza, I don't see how he would have an untimely death, uh, unless he killed himself, which is possible. But I feel like somebody that would commit a crime like that would, these usually aren't the types that would commit suicide. Um, and that's just off of, you know, the history of serial killers and whatnot. Assuming this guy is a serial killer. 
I don't want to give too much of the podcast away, but you did mention, I believe, about there was a series of like cats they found dead yeah. in the area, brutally killed, and uh, that often is uh, uh, the kind of um, path serial killers take. You start with mm-hmm. animals, and you move to humans, which would suggest probably a younger killer, which yeah. uh, you brought up on the the show. But if it was a younger person, like you mentioned, especially one that was a teenager to early 20s, they probably couldn't leave Japan uh, unless they were involved, like their family traveled or something. But just there's so many things that just don't add up. And I just wish there was even just the smallest answer that could just give you a lead. But everything just seems to hit a dead end. The thing about him being young is, like you say, it on the one hand, it explains a lot. On the other hand, you know, he's impulsive, he's making bad decisions. You know, I, I was 15 too, I, I did some stupid choices as well, right? I mean, you know, I've never killed a family, but, you know, we've all done dumb stuff when we were 15, right? It's just that, you know, that level of dumbness can depend. In this guy's case, let's say he is, you know, murdering cats in the local area. I think the, the, the person who was doing that was using, um, was laying down like treats. And so when the cat would go to it, he'd, he'd basically, I think he had like a squirt gun, with uh, some kind of sulfuric acid, and he was like, you know, hitting the cats with acid and shit, right? Oh. So clearly someone who, you know, one thing is you kick a cat because you're in a bad mood. I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, you're in a bad mood, whatever. Another thing is like laying down traps with acid and stuff. So it could well be that he was a 15-year-old who had problems, who was angry, and maybe didn't know the family, but what that family represents, he hates. So he thinks, okay, you guys, even though you didn't do it directly. The problem then is, of course... Then he disappears, and then he does live off the grid. How does a 15-year-old do that with no money, no job? That just doesn't you know? work yeah. out. It just doesn't work, man. How does – oh, let's say he fled town, right? Let's say he got on a bullet train to go to the north of Japan. Well, those suckers cost 200 bucks, right? So where's he got 200 bucks from? You know, so mm-hmm. it's just 15 kind of answers, a lot of things, but then the problem is is all the things you answer, you now have to answer new questions. And so it, it kind of – like you say, one of the one of the possibilities is, of course, that he is young, but he's connected to a family that are mobile. And so, one of the theories we get into, without too many spoilers, is that there, there are there are links to uh, Southern California. Why? Because in the bag he brings to the house, um, there are sand grains from the area around Edwards Air Force Base. Those sand grains have to be explained, and. Throughout the hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews we did, the two and a half years we investigated this case, those sand grains are never explained, except for a soil, uh, a forensic soil uh, analyst who's like the world-leading expert in this kind of stuff who solved a bunch of cases just looking at sand grains and mud and stuff like that. She said, look, Nick, if, if we had the sand that the Tokyo cops had, I could tell you where it came from, down to the mile, right, down to the mile. So the idea that, no, we've got the sand, maybe it came from here, maybe it came, bullshit. It came from one specific place. We can know where it came from. So if he came from a, a military base in America, that explains how he could move around and then go back into the U.S. base, right, because there's one about 10 or 15 miles away from, from their house in Tokyo, which, again, big coincidence, there just happens to be one there. And then he leaves, and he's never seen again, right? He's out in Okinawa, or he's out in Hawaii, or he's in Anchorage, or wherever he might be. But it could be one explanation, that, and, and it's never fully, it's never satisfactorily explained. And that's a frustration for me, because you think, well, if this is even a possibility, even if there's just a chance, why do we not beat the shit out of this possibility? You know what I mean? Yeah. 
the the fact that you brought up there was a sand database blew my mind because I did not know that <laughs> right. was a thing that you could like sequence DNA of sand or like to find out where it came from. That was yeah. really strange. I was like, holy shit, I didn't know that was a thing. And then that right. also added to the irritation of the case because like, well, fuck, get the sand. Let's find out. Like, yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah, but other because that was a really compelling theory too was the military man because mm-hmm. other than maybe somebody bought a bag at a thrift shop or something that contained this, but still, how did it, you mm-hmm. know? Like there, it would have had to change hands to get that sand, and it was just uh, yeah, that was just well, one of those well, things. Like it well, seems so plausible, not belonging to him, because that was one of the questions that always gets thrown up, right? If you say, well, he's got sand from California, so before the murders, at some point, he had to have had access. To a military base in Southern California. How does a 15-year-old Japanese kid, right, have access? Right, who's like killing cats and stuff? How does he have access to a U.S. Air Force base in California unless he's connected to it in some way? Mm. But the question is, all right, maybe it's not his bag, right? Maybe he just steals it, or or like you say, a thrift store. There are a couple of problems with that. Number one, thrifting does exist in Japan, but it's it's not a big thing, right? Like you, it's thrifting. It, the, the culture is a lot smaller because secondhand clothes in general, I mean, this is just as I understand it. it it's kind of, it grosses people out more. The idea of like you buy some other guy's shoes. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I kind of interrogated the chief about this because I wanted to know, all right, if you know that the sand in the bag is maybe from California, and if you know that his DNA is on the bag, if you're telling me maybe it belongs to someone else, did you find another DNA profile on that bag? No, I didn't. Okay. So somehow then this 15-year-old kid managed to find a way to clean somebody else's DNA profile from the bag, but not get rid of sand and not get rid of his own DNA. It's his, it's his bag. The second thing is the bag is manufactured in Japan. Mm. Right. So so if he did get it from a thrift store, it would have had to have been magically from someone who had gone to Edwards and then brought it back, sold it, and then he buys it. Is any of that possible? Yeah, maybe but it feels more likely that it's all his shit and he himself has been to a place and then subsequent to that, he, he kills the family. But yeah, man, no, no, no black or white answers. That's the sad, that's the kind of the, 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 sad, the tragedy of the paradox. Do you know if families are allowed to visit that military base or stay on that base? Like military the families? Families do stay. Family. So the air base is called Yokota and at Yokota air base, it's kind of like a very small US city. Basically, they have malls and movie theaters and stuff. And uh, yeah, you go if you're if you're an acting serviceman or woman, you go with your family. Uh, they come and live with you in, in the apartments. And I think there is a curfew. Uh, but as I understand it, if you're the 15 year old son of some pilot and you're living there, you'd, you're not going to be sharing any data with the uh, Japanese aviation authorities. Mm. You come in and out of the U.S. airbase. So maybe it's basically kind of like a domestic flight, really they're not sharing passport information with Japanese, but you are in Japan. So when you leave the base, maybe you go kill a family, you come back to the base, maybe you get on the next flight out of town and you go to Maryland or wherever you go and you're gone. You know, you're a ghost, which kind of maybe explains why you can be so bad at killing people, mm-hmm. but then you can also be Jason Bourne because you disappeared and you, and you got out of Dodge. Well, it could it be possible that a member of the U S military could be married to like a Japanese woman, you say, and then they had a kid, teenage kid, who right. travels with them, and maybe they were only in Japan for a short period of time. That would still exactly. be kind of ridiculous to think this kid would, you know, commit a murder and then just all right, I'm going back to the U.S. But 
right. uh, that could be a possibility or at least explain how the sands. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look, the, the problem is with the military theory is then it starts to sound like a, like a John Gresham novel, you know, then it, mm, it gets yeah. into conspiracies and stuff like that. But put it this way, if, if you had a son and you knew that your son was already troubled, he's probably in the disciplinary records of the local high school on the airbase, right? Maybe he's been behaving inappropriately with female students, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe he's speaking to the counsellor, right? There's going to be previous behaviour somewhere there. You already know your son is troubled. He comes home one night and his hand is opened up, right? Because we know that he cuts himself really badly whilst he's stabbing, I think it's the father. So he's got a bad injury and you have on the news a whole family killed overnight. Now, you're the dad. You've got one or two options. You say, fair cop, my kid did it. You call the police and you know that when your kid turns 18, he's facing the death penalty because he murdered four people. That's an automatic death penalty in Japan. Option two, get on that plane, shut your fucking mouth, never come back again. I mean, yeah. I don't know what I would do, man. <laughs> you know, if he's your kid and you love him, maybe, maybe you say get on the plane and shut up and never come back. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's just, oh, I'm just trying to think, like, as a dad, what would you do in yeah, that that'd situation? Be that'd like, be fucking oh, rough. That'd be a hard call to make. Well, then, oh, okay, now you got a little fucking Damien here yeah. that just murdered a family. He's <laughs> like, what do I do with this fucking kid? <laughs> right, right, um, right. You know, there's one connection I made that I thought was kind of strange. Uh, I think it just maybe gave a little credibility to the possibility of a Japanese kid. Just through the f- history of Japanese fiction I've read, I've come across a few stories. Uh, Yukio Mishima's uh, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea comes to mind. They start off killing a cat, the, the boy, and I think he has friends who do the same thing. They kill a cat, and eventually they upgrade to uh, killing a man. Uh, they poison mm-hmm. them. And I just, I've read other things, uh, just different novels and stuff over the years, where it seems like the killing of cats is kind of thing. Of course, cats are big in Japan. Um, mm. So that would be like a heinous crime, you know, murder cats. But And it always kind of leads to the killing of a person. So I just wonder if, if that's kind of ingrained in the society, those kind of thoughts of, you know, like how they'd be tropes in the U.S. or cliches, mm-hmm. like maybe that's in their fiction. Uh, so maybe that would have some kind of uh, impact on the youth there where that's just mm. in their mind. So maybe that kid just subconsciously was living that kind of, you know, that that trend there of he's going to murder yeah. cats and then he's going to try. Because you brought up, um, again, I don't want to give too much away, but there was a, a episode about a blog that was really intriguing. And yeah. one of the theories of that was a 13-year-old boy who started off yeah. killing cats and then was talking about maybe murdering a family. Yeah, so the blog was really interesting. So, okay, so the, the, there are two blogs. One is the the journalist that you mentioned, mate, about uh, he was just like a sports journalist who happened to be really interested in this case. So he set up his own blog, which is dedicated to this case. But then there was um, like a like a like a message board, two chan, and on two chan uh, on the twenty seventh of December of the year two thousand, which is three days before the murders, a thirteen year old boy is talking about killing cats and uh, how much he enjoys it. And he goes into a great deal of detail about how many cats he's killed and the rest of it. And he talks about murdering a family that live close to him in the place where he's killing these cats, which is is the park. Either there's some cosmic coincidence where a 13-year-old boy manages to successfully predict the murder of an entire family, or um, or there's something to that, there's something to that case. The problem that the chief said, we looked into it and uh, it didn't go anywhere. Whether that means 
they couldn't find anything or whether that means they found the kid and it was just a kid chatting shit on the internet. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of it being a young person, I mean, there was a trend at that time, maybe trend is the wrong word, but in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was this whole explosion of violence committed by, um, minors in Japan. And I mean, some of them were like, the, I think this one kid who was like 15 or 16, he grabs a shotgun. He goes into his local video store in the middle of Tokyo and he tries to put a bomb in the, in the video store, which goes off, I think, but miraculously it doesn't kill anyone, but he ends up like turning himself in and he has another bomb and a shotgun. This other kid killed a whole family, um, kind of similar to, to this, uh, because they accused him of peeping on, on one of the girls of the family. Um, and then the big, the huge one was a boy who gets called uh, Kid A or Boy A, and he killed a younger student in his school. I don't know if they were in Osaka or somewhere like that. He basically cut off the head of uh, one of his uh, classmates and put her head on the gates of the school. Um, So there was this whole wild explosion um, of kind of youth violence at the time. Whether or not that inspired our guy, we don't know, but it, it does kind of seem to fit nicely into that kind of pattern of assuming, you know, the, the guy was young because the police don't know for sure. DNA is not going to tell you how old the guy is. Um, but it but it does sort of seem to fit in that kind of trend. I mean, trend is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Well, that's why I brought up the fiction because I thought mm-hmm. maybe the kid on the blog, that's just fantasy, you know? Yeah. Um, because you did mention about the, uh, the uptick in youth crimes there for a while, I, mm-hmm. especially the, the, that was like straight out of an anime, the right? Yeah, murder with the yeah. Hits, but that's terrible. But just you know, things like that going on. So I could, you could easily see some troubled kid, or maybe just a kid with an mm-hmm. overactive imagination, just talking shit on the line. I think the biggest fault with the whole theory of a young kid, and even somebody maybe in their early twenties, how do they get away with it? Where do they go? Because yeah. you brought up, oh, well, how do they? How's this kid have money? Unless he yeah. has a family who just ha- happens to be a dual citizen somewhere and they're only visiting Japan or something. How does he, how do you get off? Like just, I'm gone, disappeared. doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Um, I think the reality of like living on the run, you know, I think the reality of it would be very, very, very difficult. Um, you would, you would have to be talking about an incredibly resourceful person. There was a guy uh, called, I think his name was Ichihashi and he killed an English uh, woman. She came to his house to give him an English lesson. Uh, Lindsay Hawker was her name, I think. And uh, he killed her, and she was in the bathtub. And when the police came to his door, he, and I think he lived on like the 10th floor or something, he like climbed out of the balcony and went down the building barefoot. And he did go on the run. And he lived on the run for, I think, years, uh, two, three years. He got like backstreet surgery and changed his face and shit. He was like living on uh, like abandoned islands. Because Japan is like, there are four main islands, but there are actually hundreds of islands. And I think something like 80% of them are uninhabited. So he he lived on one of these tiny little islands and was like eating fish and stuff. So he did it for like two or three years, I think. Um, and in the end, he came back. He was on a ferry when they caught him, I think. But whether or not he wanted to be caught, whether or not he was relieved, I don't know. But you imagine what that's actually like for two or three years, you know, changing your face, living hand to mouth. It, 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 you're like a hunter-gatherer, basically. You can't get a job. You can't ask for money. So the idea of a 15-year-old boy doing that, or even, like you say, someone in their 20s, I think it would be very difficult, you know. Um, and also, as well as being someone who would have to be incredibly resourceful, 
it would probably be someone who had some kind of help. Now, one of the things that didn't make it into the podcast was um, there's this whole phenomenon called the, the, the disappeared. In Japanese, it's the, the johatsu movement. And essentially, it's people who just pay a company, a night removal company. And what they do is they delete your life. You go to them, you give them money, you know, they, they delete everything. And then they take you to somewhere else in Japan and you start again. Now, you can't have a bank account and you can't have a proper job. You have to, like, work on a construction site somewhere. But you, you get to reset. You get to start again. So we, in the podcast, we were going to talk to them. and There was going to be a whole strand about, okay, let's assume this guy did live off the grid. How would that look like? And so we talked to one of these companies. They kind of explained how they disappear you, blah, blah, blah. In the end, it didn't, it didn't, um, it didn't come to be. But it would be possible. But to do that, you would have to pay these people, right? You would have to pay these people. And again, you, where does this guy get the money to, to do that? Plus, you're leaving a trail of evidence because there's someone you've spoken to. If the police did go to that removals company, they'd be like, hey, uh, did you see a guy with a, with a big scar on his hand? Right, from you know open wound, they'd be like, oh yeah, well, we, I dealt with that guy yesterday. Well, look, he murdered a whole family. So unless you want to go to court, tell us who he is. You know, so how realistic it would be to be able to just delete your life and disappear and live off the grid? I'm not convinced. Unless, like you say, his disappearance is just he went up the nearest mountain and hanged himself, and he's still swinging from the tree now. That would be a good place to hide, right? Mm. Or he left the country, dual citizen military kid uh maybe he was a foreigner to begin with right you know like my dad's uh girlfriend she has two kids she's spanish she had two kids with a japanese guy you know they're dual citizens maybe it's not very common but but he could have two passports i have a bunch of passports so if he's thinking i'll do the thing and then i'll just leave that clearly has worked out for him right because here we are 22 years later the idea of him being a former a foreigner did seem pretty credible because the main thing for me was that, you know, he used the computer, but didn't mm. seem like he knew the Japanese characters because it was a Japanese uh, keyboard. Right. Um, so I, I could definitely see that again, how he comes and goes. Uh, I don't know. Did they shut everything down when they found the murders? Like were the airport shut down or anything? Or was it just still free for all? You could just leave, come and go as you please. I, I know that they looked at aviation authority. So what I think that means is they're going through one of the millions of people who've gone through those, you know, the, the airports in, cause you have to think they find the family the next morning. So it's not like that the family, you know, the, the dead bodies are there for a week, right? They find them the next morning. So he's left at most, at most, he's left the house like nine hours before. So he's got an, at most a nine hour head start. We know we, the, the one timestamp we have for sure is that he logs onto the computer at 1.18 AM. Probably he's broken in sometime around 11. And he logs onto the computer at 1.18 a.m. He's on the computer for five minutes. At 1.23, he logs off. That's the only timestamp we have. It's possible he logs off and then just leaves the house right there and then. And the family are found at 10, 10, 10 30 in the morning uh, the next day. So it's possible it's like a nine-hour time frame that he's got. Or it's possible that he left at 9 a.m. and only had 60 minutes. Seems less likely you'd be walking around in daylight, but I don't know. Especially if you're bleeding. To the authorities, they were probably like, "Did you see a guy with a hand injury? Right, a male between the ages of 15 and 40." Well, the presumably only he has to have a bandage, right? He's not just going to go with an open wound. So somebody's going to notice that. And if he didn't get on a plane right away, 
Um, within a couple of days, I think that would have been locked down or at least someone watching. Clearly, they didn't find anything on that front. The alternative is he had to find a way out of the country that, where there wasn't Japanese police watching, which might well include a US airbase, which is sovereign US territory, where they're not, they're not allowed to ask, hey, did you see anybody with a, with a, with a, with a bandage? You know, you, you imagine it. The, the US authorities are going to be like, sure, if you have a suspect who's in here, come to us with a warrant and we'll talk. What they're not going to say is, yeah, just come in and start looking at our 15-year-old kid. It's not going to happen, right? So, yeah, so he had to have left the country somehow if he did leave the country, or he's just dead somewhere and he got eaten by a bear. Yeah. That, also, that also is a possibility. Well, if he, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he'd like to find yeah. the guy, but also yeah, fucking eat a asshole first. I don't care. But, uh, <laughs> He, if he did leave the country, though, that would, especially that day or night, that would suggest pre-planning, which I just don't see something this that person had. Yeah, that almost like I said, it almost seemed like a, like a homeless person just randomly went into this house. But the brutality of the murder seemed too personal. There's too many questions. Too um, many, I know it's just one question leads to two questions leads yeah. to three. Folks, listen to the podcast. It's it's really engaging. You're gonna you're just gonna you're gonna research it. Like yeah, that's right. what I did. Like, you just want to keep looking up shit. After doing, especially with uh, um, interviewing all these different people and you know learning about the sand database and all that stuff, how is that? Ch- how's faceless doing faceless? How has that changed uh, or impacted your writing now? Like doing true crime stuff, has it given you more details now you can focus on, or has it changed anything? I think the main thing is that um, I mean I I'm not sure I gave kind of podcasts as a as a as a writing medium enough respect. I think to begin with, I just thought. How hard can it be? Um, and it turns out kind of hard, yeah. you know? So I think that there were definitely lessons learned because you're basically playing. If you're doing an investigative podcast, you're basically becoming a detective and a journalist at the same time. And so I kind of had to go through like a crash course of that. Um, and I think it did make me a better writer in the sense that I know I've only got seven blocks of 30 minutes to tell this whole fucking huge story, right? Um, so you have to pick and choose your battles. In a novel where you've got 400 pages, the same rules apply, right? You've only got so much real estate. But three, 400 pages, it's a lot easier to kind of lay out your case. So, yeah, limited real estate, I think, brings out your best writing in a lot of ways, especially when you're writing in a kind of cinematic way so that people can kind of hear it and feel it. The other thing, I mean, I guess the, the, the kind of the main takeaway is that you think, well, now that I can write a podcast, maybe I'll go out and write the second one. It kind of gives you a taste, yeah. a taste for it, you know. The nice thing is that with a podcast, although this took two years plus to make, part of that was pandemic. I mean, initially we were going to go to Japan and have these interviews face-to-face. It was a lot of waiting for that to open up. They've only opened up recently. So in the end, Universal will just like make it, do it over Zoom, and we'll work it out, which is what which is what happened. But the, the nice thing about a podcast is that you make it happen, and depending on the amount of production that goes in, it's going out to people's ears a lot quicker than the process of me getting an idea for a book, sitting down to write it, it comes out. You know, it's you're talking about, you know, gaps of years until mm. you can kind of talk to your talk to your readers, right? So it I think the podcast is a lot more immediate in many ways. Um in terms of like, yeah, how it changes your writing, I think anytime you go outside of your comfort zone, you are learning what is you and what is not you. And I think anytime where you think this is what I'm not about. That, in a way, helps you kind of underline what you are about. I think all of those kind of outside-of-the-box experiences are valuable, even if it's just 
you know, for you to go, hey, it turns out poetry is not for me, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of what happens to me with podcasts. It's, it's, it's kind of, I like podcasts. I want to write more podcasts. I probably don't want to be in front of the camera anymore. You know, yeah. I don't want to be in front of the mic anymore. I just want to write the suckers. So yeah, it's kind of led me to talks with other podcast companies about writing episodes and pitching stuff, but um, with actors reading the, the script rather than me having to to do because it turns out I'm not much of an actor, man. It's not my it's not, it's not my thing. Well, yeah, we could have an Iowata like you. Um, I'm sure there's like an Audible thing, but uh, to have your own like podcast of even the stories you've already read could be, in, could yeah, be, interesting. Could be interesting too. Right, right, yeah. You do a podcast of the podcast, man. Yeah. Well, like crime fiction podcasts are actually really popular where you just have an ongoing yeah. story. So if you had a what a um, story going on, maybe a new story. Well, yeah, a new story would be You know, think like Sherlock's Home Adventures, like kind of, you know, yeah. you could just have a serialized version of that and that probably score you some money too. <laughs> it was actually, I was looking at a buddy of mine sent me a link to um, Julianne Moore and Oscar Isaac did like a podcast audio book type thing. And he's like from the future and she's a psychiatrist. And he, he's like a traveler and he's like, I have to save the world, which I, I was listening to that. And I was like, this is basically just the plot of 12 monkeys. Yeah. But, okay. <laughs> but, um, but, but the way they packaged it was like, here are two big actors basically reading you a, a novel, but by a podcast format. So it's, yeah, package, the packages seems to be ever changing, but the, the, the heart of it, which is good stories, that's always going to be there, man. Oh, it's yeah. never going to change. It doesn't matter if there's pandemic, war, whatever people still on a Tuesday night, someone's bored. They want a story. And and that's why guys like me and you, you know, we're always going to have work, you know, I was just curious. Cause you mentioned about having that limited time for the episodes. Why were the episodes limited? Why couldn't they have been an hour long each or 10 episodes? What, what, how'd that come about? So typically you, you, you go one of two ways, right? Which is you either don't work with a USG um, where they put all the money up, and, uh, and you go your own way, you try and find your own funding, and your episodes can be as long as you want, but then you have to do the whole, like, I love Blue Apron. On a Tuesday night, I had the cashew peanut and blah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. and you kind of have the advertising in there as well. And then, or you go the, the, the route of having a USG, and they don't have to be ads and stuff, but they, I think, I mean, not just them, but typically people want the episode to be between 30 and 45 minutes, because that's the usual length of someone's commute. And they're going between A and B. They've got 30, 40 minutes. And that's the sweet spot. Um, kind of like with novels, really. Like, you can make a novel that's 150,000 words long. But normally, the novel is going to be around 80,000 because that's just the commercial agreed kind of sweet mm. spot. So, yeah, 35, 40 minutes, that, that's kind of the length between you take the kids to school, then you go to work, and then you kind of heard, you've heard the whole episode. It, there definitely was material here to make every episode three hours. We could have done that, right? Um, I, don't, I don't think I would yep. mind it that honestly. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's just me personally. Yeah. I, been, I, yeah. I like going into the details and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I could do, I could do like a compilation of the deep cuts, you know, the the, the, the secret tapes. But um, the flip side, of course, is is if it's only 30, 40 minutes, the work is a lot smaller. The work is a lot more manageable, and there was a shitload of work as it was. Let alone if the scripts were all three times as long. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, maybe not for this project, but if you ever did. And uh, something like this again in the future, you could always do like a Patreon only where you would have the extended versions of the episodes or something. Or, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that would be cool to do. 
Oh, no, I mean, that's a good idea, actually. And also, you know, a little bit of money for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't sure how the rights went having this show because, you know, you actually did have backing and stuff. So I didn't know if it was just like 100% your project that was backed or you know, I didn't know how much wiggle room you had with being able to make changes or having a Patreon or something like that. I mean, I imagine anything that we... So anything that we did for them, I think, belongs to them. Um, but, like, certainly I spoke to... 30, 40, 50 people that didn't make it into the into the podcast. Um, and anywhere between half an hour or three or four hours, I spoke with those people. So, you know, it starts to spin out to hundreds of hours. So you think, you know, all of that stuff was just my time and my Zoom. So I, yeah. think, I assume that would belong to me. Um, the nice thing in here was that, and this is kind of what I pitched them, was I don't want to, I, I don't want to go off in like some long, sprawling, you know, saga where, we just keep on coming back in season two. We look at this in season three, you know, th th we, we could do this in one story and unless they catch the guy and then we have like a catch up episode or maybe season two, then, then we can talk. Yeah. I didn't want to be tied to, and not because it's anything personal to them, but just to any company, you know, for more than the project, once the project was done, I'm free to go off and, and do other stuff because I think generally, you know, I had some experiences um, talking with Amazon and stuff like that, not about this podcast, but other stuff. And you look at the way that they set up, uh, and not just Amazon, but I think a lot of companies, you look at the way that they set up these uh, contracts and, and you kind of think, I don't, want to be, I don't want to be stuck in a loop where if this does well, in a year's time, Amazon or anybody else could turn around and say, we want you to do another season two and I have to do it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think that's the problem with when you get put money on the table, you, know, you have to think like, okay, well, money's great, but, but what about my time down the line? Now, I know that's a luxury because a lot of people just have to feed their kids, right? So, but that, that's that's the downside to working with big names is that you, you look at the fine print and then you look at well, what does this mean in terms of, you know, how much freedom I get. And that's, as you know, the beautiful thing about writing is that you are God in your own universe, you know? And so if someone buys it, great. If they don't, they don't. But it's, it's your story. So. Well, it's definitely having, you know, a company you're working with is a double-edged sword because... On the one hand, you know, they can schedule all the interviews, do all the waiver stuff, the legal stuff, uh, mm. you know, put together music and everything, edit it. Like, you don't have to do any of that shit, which would be nice. Right, right, right. But then also, like you said, if they want to do, you know, season two, Faceless Electric Boogaloo, like yeah. now you're fucking on the yeah. hook for that. Or right, if they right. decide, hey, we don't like the way you wrote this. We want you to change all that. Like. I, yeah. I think that would be too frustrating. Um, of course, you know, yeah. depending on how much money they'd want to give you, that yeah. could change things too. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the money is funny as well because you kind of think like, all right, uh, we'll give you this much, right? Now, what they're paying you is for the project. Now, you get paid at different times. It's like one is up front, you get a certain amount. Two is when you deliver episode one. And then the third installment is when the whole thing is delivered, right? So they split it out three ways. So it feels like you're getting paid three times. But basically, you're getting paid for one project. I, I wasn't billing by the hour, you know, because yeah. if I was billing by the hour, I'd be a rich man. Right? <laughs> yeah. But then it's stuff like, all right, well, we'll, we'll pay you this much. Um, and then um, if, you know, let's say the Tokyo police do cooperate with you and do give you a small sample of the killer's DNA, we can put aside $100,000 for lab testing. And, blah, and you're like, well, if you can put it. Why are you giving me something? Yeah. <laughs> why, why were you lowballing me, man? Where's that money for me? You know. 
Well, so, well so even like, on an on on like an emotional level too, though, it's like how long can you stay submerged in that grisly world? You yeah, know? you mean how, just constantly yeah. thinking about it, writing about it. That that's tough. Like it's hard enough just creating your own world that you're submerged in for so long, let alone um, a real one. Yeah, and I think that's there's such a good point because you know normally when you create your own worlds, yeah, I mean you know we can all kind of get a bit preoccupied with you know, these characters and they're in your heads and stuff. But at the end of the day, you go to the bar with your friends or whatever, you can you can let it go. The problem I had with this was that because it is real, you know, and because those photographs that I've seen are real, um, they're in your head. And then you do go to the bar with your buddies and they're like, shit, so tell me about this and tell me about, hey, I listened to episodes. And it's just like, because it's real, people want to people talk about it. They, they want to kind of know more. And I think that's kind of what's so compelling about this case which at the same time is what's frustrating about it, is that as humans, we can accept horrific things if we can kind of understand them, right? Now, it's not to say we forgive it, right? We, we don't forgive Ted Bundy for murdering all those women, but we go, oh, okay, he, he, he hated women, and so he, you know, this triggered him, and so that's why he would do that, and it, it, it kind of makes sense to us on some level, right? And we go, okay, so that's why this is happening now. With this guy, there is no... That's why this is happening. So all we're left with is the what. And the what is, the events are horrific. We can't even begin to understand what drove him. I mean, one of the early conversations I had with the chief was, is it true that there, there were signs of sexual assault on the females, the males, whatever? Because I thought it must be that what was driving him was some kind of sexual need or whatever, and it's just that nobody spoke about it because it was too much. Yeah. He said, absolutely zero evidence of any sexual assault there's no semen at the scene. This is not why he did this. So it's like, fuck, man. Like, well, there has to be a reason. You know what I mean? Like, and actually, some of the really frustrating things uh, that came out that we learned, which we can't really get into for legal reasons. You know, it, it's it's like you learn stuff which blows your fucking mind, and you're like, oh, why didn't I see that? Right? But then, of course, the lawyers are like, you can't put that in. You can't put that in because we will get sued yeah. because we don't. Have right so then it's that catch 22 of like i set out to find the truth and then you do find out new stuff but you can't even talk about it you know it's like it really is like you rub the genie's lamp and beware what you get out of it uh, that has to be the, one of the most frustrating things is you have information that you would love to share and you just can't like nobody's supposed to know this or ah uh, that would drive me nuts 100 percent. funnily enough uh on some of the crime you know the true crime kind of sleuthing websites I put the details of the case up there just to see if anybody knew anything about it. And a couple of people sent me private messages being like, hey, I noticed that um, even though this happens in episode one, you never go back to that. Can I ask you more about it? And it's like, you are on the right track, my friend. <laughs> ask me about it, you know. I think that's the kind of, the, to go back to one of your earlier questions about what you learn as a writer, the, the, the most surreal thing was realizing that you put a fucking microphone in front of someone's face and they feel like they have to answer, right? You call someone up. I, I mean, at one point, we spoke to Interpol, right, about this case. So it's like you're calling up Interpol and you're like, shit, I'm scared, right? I mean, about Interpol, right? And you ask them questions and somebody on the end of the line starts answering. And you kind of realize this is what it must be like to be a fucking detective, right? You just, you call up and you say, hey, I want to know this. And somebody answers. And so you start to find stuff out about real world stuff it's mm. it's um, a trip man it really was surreal good experience never again man yeah, yeah. <laughs>
Well, mm-hmm. one takeaway that's positive is I would imagine now when you're going, you know, if you're writing more uh, crime fiction novels or anything, you have a lot to draw on now. Like from personal yeah. experience, like you said, it almost made you like an investigator. You kind of uh, get the feeling of what it would be like to interview how people. How things yeah. work and stuff like that. Yeah, you got an yeah, inside yeah. look into that world. Yeah, totally. Well, funnily enough, a, a bunch of friends have said, Nick, you have to write a novel about a guy making a podcast who learns out the truth and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea, but but not for now, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Need it's a good break. idea, but it's, but it's for later on. Man. <laughs> well, do you have any projects in the work currently? Yeah, man. So um, one of the things I'm talking about is with another podcast company, maybe pitching some ideas, to you know, true crime ideas to do with that. Um, and so... But like I say, that would be more just writing the episodes and getting somebody else to kind of put it together. So that would be cool because that would kind of be using like a kind of um, like a kind of day job, really. Yeah. Um, whilst I go to my one true love, which is writing a novel, and the the novel that I'm beginning to to, to research now is um, is set in Spain and very loosely um, is about uh, this whole phenomenon of what's happened here where a bunch of babies were stolen throughout Franco's dictatorship uh, for various reasons. And the way that that scandal has all come out, because there's this whole generation of mothers who are now in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are talking up about it for the first time, you know, and saying that happened to me. Um, there was a documentary that went out 2009-ish about an American guy who his parents are getting old and uh, he's told, look, we're not your real parents. We actually adopted you from, from Spain. So he pays a private detective. The detective somehow finds this old lady living in Madrid. And this American guy learns a bit of Spanish. He goes, he knocks on the door, and he says in Spanish, you're my mother. And she says, and you're my son. And they embrace. And this went out on TV. Thousands of women rang up and said, that fucking happened to me. you know. Shit. So there's this whole kind of thing. And there's a personal connection in that case uh, to do with my own family. So I want to write uh, a novel where basically... Uh, a grandmother finds out she's sick and she doesn't have a lot of time left and she decides that she wants to find her missing son. So it'd be, you know, an elderly Spanish granny becoming a detective. Well, right? That's and interesting. Yeah. You know? So that would kind of, um, and, and that's kind of been a novel that I've always wanted to write, but I've kind of been biding my time to reach, you know, like I had to become a black belt before I could yeah. fight. Yeah. So that's that. So that would be the next novel uh, I write, and then there's a couple of other projects, sort of uh, irons in the fires. But those are those are the kind of the two main things that are on my plate right now. I really like that granny detective. Yeah, I never yeah, heard I like that, that before. Yeah. yeah, I can't think of any instance of that. Like, that wasn't me. Maybe like a comedy or something, but like a serious. Like, yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I would definitely want to kind of make it like funny, but also sad. You know what I yeah. mean? That's kind of. I'm. I think me personally. Because this is an interesting question, like for you guys too. It's like when you read a book, how much of the author comes out in the story, or how much they hide, how much you can see them, you know? Because mm. I think me personally, what happens to me a lot is that my friends they, they read my stuff and they go, "Fuck, that was a lot more depressing than I was expecting from you," you know? Because yeah. you're like a hilarious guy, and so I think it would be quite fun to kind of let some of the sense of humour come out in the story as well as making uh, readers cry and sad, which is my number one. I just want to make people cry. <laughs> I think having a little blend of comedy in there is always a bonus. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that dark comedy, that dark humor. Yeah, you get it. Yeah. 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 yeah um, I mean, that's what, you know, the British are known for, right? Yeah. So I, I grew up with that stuff. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, uh, 
Well, and I think as well, you know, it's interesting because for me, like I'm living in Spain, I moved over in April, and um, but I, I kind of grew up between London and the UK, where my mum is from, and uh, and Madrid and, and Spain, where my dad is from. But I would only come to Spain for like, you know, some time at Christmas or over the summer holidays. So I'm from here, but I kind of also am not from here. So you have this kind of Martian's eye on this place. And I think it's it will be fun for me to kind of use what I know about this place, but also be able to use my kind of outsider's perspective at the same time, you know? Because I think when you live in a place and when you're from a place, in some ways, like if I were to write a novel set in London, in some ways it would be really accurate and stuff. But in another way, it's right here in front of your face and maybe you lose some objectivity, whereas an outsider comes for six months and they can tell you this works, this doesn't work and stuff. So it would be fun for me to kind of walk that line. I was always curious why you didn't have any books set in Spain because, you know, especially when you talk about living there now, but just, you know, you're always visiting and stuff. I see on your stories on Instagram and, yeah. you know, your first three books are Japan and U.S. Yeah. And I think yeah. Mexico and the and Sins of Scarlet. So I was just, you know, I was like, why does he write about Spain? Like, he, you know, he clearly yeah, loved the place. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, man. You know, it's funny. I think I, for me, when, when I grew up, I moved to Spain, um, sorry, I moved to the UK kind of full-time, more or less from the age of like eight onwards, right, when my when my parents break up. Um, but up until that point, or certainly my early childhood, all of the all of the cartoons, all of the video games, you know, all of the magazines uh, that we were consuming here, they were just Japanese, right, but they were just dubbed. And so, like, my earliest experiences with story were from Japan. And so, like, in a way, kind of writing something, like I remember watching Akira for the first time and it just blowing my mind. I didn't even understand it, but it just blew my mind. And I just thought, I want to go to that place and I want to write stories about this too, right? So kind of in a way, I think that was part of how Inspector Iwada was born was that it's, it's that weird, you know, like Europeans have this a lot with America where you go to New York for the first time and it's weird because you know it from all the movies that you've seen, right? All the media that you've consumed, but also you don't know it because you've never been there before and you're a foreigner. So yeah, it's um it's a weird thing where I've never set any of my stories so far in either of the places I've really lived in my life. So I think it's kind of about time where I kind of came back to my roots and started uh, tackling the, the places that I know now. I think it was the first, uh, the last time you were on, you discussed like about getting a book deal having your story set in Japan, just that foreign aspect is one thing they went for. So that's why I was like, well, I would be really interested in reading about Spain because I don't know much about yeah. it versus, you know, like the UK. And like you said, you know, Europeans go into New York. It's right in media. You're always, you always get the view that we want to portray it as yeah, there's always two yeah. versions. Yeah. But it's never the real version. So, right. you know, the fact that you're living in Spain and stuff, I feel like it would be, cause my only, things i think i've read said spain were fucking hemingway's work and yeah yeah how you know right, how realistic right, is that yeah. gonna be <laughs> yeah. um yeah well you know the funny thing is about spain is that spain is kind of an outlier in a lot of ways because now it's just a regular european country it walks and talks like a european country right but um you know franco died in 1975 so that's only nine years before i'm born and that guy was just an all-out dictator. That guy was like Hitler, Mussolini, any of the guys you want to mention. The difference was he was probably not as dumb as some of the other ones, which is how he died in his sleep, relaxed as an old man, right? In the, in the 50s, the late 50s, I think it was, Eisenhower makes a deal. 
The Cold War is brewing. And he goes, well, this guy is a dictator and fascism is bad. But also, Franco is an anti-communist. And that's handy right now. And I'm going to do a deal with him so I can use uh, those air bases in Spain, which is a lot closer to Russia if I need them. And that's the turning point where Spain goes from being an international pariah, from being like, don't touch that place, to, oh, the US has accepted Spain. Maybe we will too. And around that time is where you get the mass tourism coming from England. The package holiday, which didn't really exist, becomes a thing where poor English people, instead of going to holiday, you know, in the beach in England where they're going to freeze their ass off, they go to a sunny country and, wow, this is great. And so they think, well, this is a normal country. So you get this weird kind of netherworld where in the one way it's kind of looks like a normal country, but in another way, like my dad has experiences of this, people who just don't turn up one day because they said the wrong thing or they read the wrong book or they had the wrong opinion. You know, we've got the stuff about the stolen babies. You know, there's the, the fact about Spain is only second to Cambodia in the world for mass graves that are still being turned up today Jeez. because Franco killed so many fucking people that didn't agree with him, just chucked them in a big hole, you know? So it's this weird place where in 1975, it kind of stops being a dictatorship and becomes a democracy, but it's still well within living memory, right? Yeah. That two people, you know, one guy tortured another guy. There's a famous case of a guy called Billy the Kid who will probably make an appearance in my, in my new book. Uh, he was a torturer. He was a small guy who liked hurting people. He was the kind of most notorious of all of the torturers. And uh, years later, you know, he wins five medals from Franco and the rest of it. Years later, one of his victims, walking to work one day, he's just, you know, he's got his coffee, walking down the street, and he turns around, and there's the guy who tortured him a decade ago, just with a newspaper going into his apartment. They lived on the same fucking street. <laughs> oh, fuck. But they just had to pretend, they just had to pretend that they were living in a in a regular country. So Spain is a very strange place. And I think most people don't realize how kind of, uh, how strange it is. And it's really rich, fertile ground for, for an author. Um, that isn't Hemingway, because I think he's yeah. kind of, his <laughs> time, man. Well, and, and I don't know, maybe it is just because of Hemingway, but in the U.S., I think the most we usually know about Spain is like bullfighting, Spanish yeah, Civil right. War, pretty much everything right. fucking Hemingway talked about. Uh, like he brought up those babies. Like, I never heard of that. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, crazy. That before. Yeah, so maybe uh, yeah. just like you do with Faceless, you could uh, bring some of this stuff to light and, you know, get people interested in a country that I probably, I wouldn't say underrated, but a lot of people don't talk about. Um, right. And I mean, you know, it makes sense. It's a long way away. There are a lot of European countries, you know. it's. I think it's one of those things where, look, you, you talk to anybody English, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would defy you to try and find an English person who's never been to Spain, right? It's, it's, it's the default holiday destination of most of Europe. And yet, most of those, you know, millions of people who go, I think it's the second or third most visited place on earth is Spain. Um, and yet, you talk to most of those people, you ask them about the stolen babies, you ask them about Franco, and they'll say, oh yeah, I kind of vaguely know, but they don't really know. And I think that's where there's a gap for me to kind of come in and tell these stories, not with a history lesson, but by using characters, mm -hmm. by using an old lady, because, you know, you, you take the figure of a grandmother and for most people, you know, it's that mix of feeling sad, but also that love, you know, that to me, it's like, that's a free punch to the heart. You know, mm -hmm. you, you deal with a grandmother. It's like, I'm going to fucking hit the readers hard. Mm -hmm. man. So, uh, that's my main goal, basically. But read all my books. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> well, like from a cultural aspect, like 
you know, Japan's well's pretty deep. Everyone knows, you know, a lot about Japan, or at least something, you know. You ask any random person about Japan, they, oh, manga, social, anime. Uh, yeah. Social level stuff. Uh, same thing goes with, like, England, Russia to a degree. But, uh, like, you seem to be good about bringing things that people don't know. Like, in uh, Sins of Scarlet, like, you, you have the character go to Mexico, for which is also, it was an interesting turn. You have a Japanese and right. American citizen now going to Mexico. Like, that's mm-hmm. something you don't read too much about. But then you're just touching, because everybody, oh, cartel and, you know, fucking mm-hmm. Tijuana donkey shows. Like, people mm-hmm. don't have a great idea right. of, like, I, I just found out recently most people don't know that Mexico's made up of states like the U.S. is. Yeah. Like, a right. lot of people don't know that. And I, did, I just assumed that was common knowledge. But, so, you know, the whole, it's a, it's a big country. But, like, just the yeah. things you touched on, it wasn't just straight, like, cartel it was just like the uh, the feeling of Mexico that you don't you yeah. know, get through. So if you could do something uh, similar with like Spain, I think that would be really mm-hmm. cool to get. Because uh, like, you know, in your uh, Iwata stories, Japan, you get the feeling of the people, not just yeah. the general. Oh, this is how it operates and what it's like to be yeah. here. Yeah, man. And, and you know, I, I, I appreciate that a lot because that's one of the things that I really kind of spend time on when I'm writing is trying to get the feel of a place, trying to get the world to live and breathe. Because if the characters are moving in a place that you feel, um, then I think the story always hits harder. You know, if it feels like a real place, then the stuff that happens in the place kind of uh, you, is more credible. And I, like you say, you know, I've got a family in in San Diego, right? That, that's you know, you can see Tijuana over that. You can see yeah. it. You can put, put your fingers through the wall. You know, um, there's a place called the Friendship Park, and uh, you go there on the weekend. And the families who live on the American side of the border. They go to the they go to the wall, and they can just about poke their fingers through, and they can just about touch the fingers of their family on the other side who can't make it, you know. And and it doesn't matter what your politics are; it doesn't matter why that's happening. You know, I defy anybody with a heart to look at that and not feel moved, you know, and not think, "Fuck, like I'm lucky that I don't have to put my hand through a wall yeah. in order to touch the people I love," you know. So most, you know, not most, but a lot of people in that town don't know that that's a thing, you know, and it's right there in their faces. So I think it stands to reason that we don't always scrutinize the place where we're from because it's just background, you know. It's if yeah. I'm going to work on the same route every day, I'm not going to look at, you know, oh, there's a there's a, there's a a bookshop there. I mean, I would if it was a bookshop. That's a bad example. You know, it's it's so I think it kind of stands to reason that people kind of don't always do that. But then that's what's beautiful about this job is it's kind of it's your work to – um, cast your eye on stuff and think. I want to bring this out to the attention of the attention of more people. This is really one of the gifts. Oh, am I there? Oh, no, you're bad. There you go. He froze for a minute. <laughs> I might have to use that imagery. That was like really touching. Yeah, like the, through the the wall there. Yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah, just Google Friendship Park. Yeah. And just some of the photos, man. You're like, fuck. You know what I mean? Like some guys on this side because he's working to send money back, but then his little kid. You know, you see her once a week and she gets bigger and Yeah. Through a you know, wall. Just, like yeah. Uh, imagine through seeing like your kids man. or relatives grow up through a fucking wall. Like, come on. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think as well, you know, that that's putting aside because uh, it's it's not really anything to do with politics, but but literally just the idea that like if you think I have such a hard deal, right? I like life is so unfair, then w- without stopping for one second to go, but also maybe I am lucky in some ways, right? Mm. I just, I just don't understand at which point you go, fuck those people. Oh, they're going to walk through five days through the desert and maybe risk death 
for for blue jeans and and the American. No, they're going to do it because they need to make money because they're desperate, right? What at what point do you think fuck them versus hey, I'm glad that didn't happen to me? Like, yeah. where is that that impulse of being like, oh, that like I feel bad for these people, but also I feel lucky. I just don't understand how people don't have that that part of their soul where they go, what good fortune that I don't have to do that, right? I think it's because they don't see it. Because yeah. if if you were to see that, there's no way you can't just not feel anything. Out of sight, out of mind. You have to be a sociopath yeah. not to yeah, be able yeah. to feel that. Like You have to almost look at them like they're not real people. Mm-hmm. Which is why yeah. when you see on the news and stuff, and you know they talk about illegal immigrants coming through the border and stuff, it's always numbers. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, yeah. Not, you don't, they're not showing you. Like, if they do show you, it's this ridiculous, oh, they're coming in on a caravan. and like It's just yeah. always ridiculous. It's a spectacle. So they, they, right. you can't just see the individual people as people because then you're not going to no. think that way. Um, no. Well, and then also, it's, it's, I think, part of, um, part of Trump, part of Brexit, part of the kind of populist movement that we seem to be moving through in the world at the moment, it does reduce stuff to black and white because, you know, the tough guy... Right. I mean, first of all, Donald Trump explaining anything to anyone, I think, is just <laughs> in itself absurd, right? But but the tough man going up on stage saying, life is not gray, life is black and white. We are weak, I will make us strong. You are poor, I will make you rich. You don't have your coal mining job, I will give you your coal job back, right? If he's giving you black and white, if he's saying, we can live in a black and white world, then that's going to appeal, that's going to make you feel mm. safe and better, right? The, the truth is, life is not black and white, life is gray, life is complicated. And if somebody tells you life is not complicated, don't trust them, man. Don't vote for you. Don't yeah. vote for them. I'm lying to you, man. You can't ignore the nuances of life and the infinite shades of gray. It's just not like there's no, there's never just here's the answer and this is what we can implement right. and it works 100%. Like that's just not life. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Even if you want it to, man. It's yeah, just yeah, it's just, it's not going to work out. But just because I uh, fucking edit this giant thing yeah. for an hour and a half, so you should probably wrap this up. Do you have, I guess we could do this way, do you have anything? Uh, either to promote besides this, uh, you know, faceless, which you can do, uh, you know, websites, work, you want old work, doesn't matter. Just take the reins um, there. Well, I mean, you know, people can, can find my, my, so my website is, uh, nicholasobregon.com, which is N I C O L A S, uh, O B R E G O N.com. You always like, should be able to spell your own name as a writer. <laughs> yeah. that's all, you know. Or, uh, or just Google Obregon books and it pops up. And I'm in, you know, I'm on Twitter. And, I mean, it's mainly just me retweeting funny stuff about cats. So, yeah. you know, don't like <laughs> the gasket to see it. Yeah, in terms of promoting stuff, I mean, my next book is going to be out late next year, early 2024. So there's not an immediate call to action there, but it will be a standalone uh, mystery with a new detective. Um, and it will be based in uh, unnamed uh, America. And it's to do with a religious sect, a kind of quasi-Amish sect and a, and, a, and a local mystery. And these two things kind of come together. Um, just like we were saying off air, you know, I went up to Pennsylvania, saw some stuff, and I thought, man, I, I want to write a story <laughs> set in this world where you are either inside or you are outside. Mm-hmm. And then I just you know it, it leads you to the natural conclusion of well, what if a detective from the outside had to go inside to come to the truth. I also saw witness uh, with Harrison Ford around that time, and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a story based on a similar ground." Have you flirted with the idea of doing something like a Patreon, where if people wanted to give you five bucks or whatever you set, 
they maybe get like early excerpts from the book that you're working on or just the, some ideas or here's a quick outline or something because that mm-hmm. not only is that just a good idea just to bring you money but that could get the reader interested in something that's not going to come out for a year that way they have something to fall because i always thought about that too it's like I, mm-hmm. i'm not good at social media i just yeah. don't like it yeah, so right. you know I'm, I'm terrible promoting things but that would be something that i think would be beneficial yeah i think you're right man i, I mean you know, you see other writers do that. And I always think like, why don't I do that? I think literally the answer is just, you know, I'm quite lazy. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's just the answer. That's that's the answer there. Um, I think as well, like, you know, there's that kind of secondary layer of like, how scary will it be if I put up the Patreon and then just never get any dollars? You know what I mean? That's what like, I always worry about. Yeah. Always, <laughs> we thought about doing one for the, the, you know, our podcast or when we had the site up and stuff. And I'm just like, I was worried. like, that seems like a lot of work to do, though, if nobody. Uh, oh, hey, you know, my, my brother gives me a dollar a month. but like <laughs> That's like kind of going on to like sign up for a dating app and having nobody swipe for you. You're just like, yeah. oh, man. nobody likes me. And I just want to quit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing as well about, you know, with Patreon is that you kind of think, I mean, sometimes you hear them and it will be like, um, you'll get my YouTube video, you know, one day before everybody else. And it's just like, all right, for 20 bucks a month, I'll yeah. just wait. The the next day. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I think like just the exclusive, like you get early excerpts from the novel or something that are never going to mm-hmm. be released. You know, they're not the finished yeah. product. And obviously you'd have to figure out how to do that without giving things away or especially because, yeah. you know, we're writers. A lot of times yeah. that might never that whole idea might get scrapped, yeah. like, you know, yeah. that fucking chapter sucked. I'm not even dealing with it. Yeah. So, but you know, people are just interested in that kind of stuff, but I, I have yeah, yet to find any like with the podcast. Like you said, that would, that would be, cause you know, there are hundreds of hours uh, connected to this where I spoke to some really interesting fucking people that, um, and it just never made it on there. So, I mean, that definitely, I think there would be scope to do that. Or even just like you say, kind of giving people an insight into the way you work when you create stuff, I think for readers, they always find that stuff interesting. Oh, yeah. Or whatever you do, like a, a book event, people, the questions you get are always, where did this come from? How did this begin? You know, they want to get into the to the kind of the, the, the process of it. So, yeah, man, I think it's a good shout. I think it's probably something I should consider. Yeah, especially with, because, like, I know, like, sometimes, like, I've, like, I've held it off, like, I haven't read Unknown Mail yet because I know, like, as of right now, that's the last work you have right now. So it's like, yeah. I read this, how long, you know, until your next book, I, you know, yeah. comes out that I want, I want, or with any, you know, with any uh, author, you know, that's the thing. It's like, okay, I'm caught up with this person now. If I read this last one, you know, yeah. when can I read the next thing? So if you are yeah. able to figure out a way on Patreon or something like that to give your fans something else to, you know... To, to to attract them to you know to keep them interested and and stuff like totally. that totally and i mean you know the, the funnily enough the, the book i'm writing at the moment or that's going to come out next year it's a standalone detective it's a new detective but it did come out of a short story with inspector iwata you know it, it, so it started life as an inspector iwata short story um and it just had so much going for it that i thought this is almost too good for a short story, man. This this could this could be its own thing. So that's kind of where. So you're right, man. You, you think, but that Inspector Why the short story was written. It yeah. is out there. There's just nowhere for it to go, you know. So it, yeah, I think that kind of thing. It's even if it's like one person who reads it who gets some joy out of it. I mean, for me, the work is done. It didn't take anything yeah. really extra to just put it up there. So yeah, no, you guys are you, you you're right. You know, maybe I should maybe I should do that. 
Yeah, we're good at doing putting out advice that we don't follow ourselves. Yeah, so, all the, all the fucking time. <laughs> what you really should do is, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, look, guys, this has been a pleasure as always, man. Yeah, um, we'll have to when your next book comes out. Assuming this podcast is still up, we've been flirting with the idea of starting a new podcast where we don't have to just discuss writing in books. We can expand because. Again, you know, the website's down, so it's like, yeah, has the podcast lived, you know, has it gone through its lifespan? We're, we're still in deliberation for that, but anyway. Uh, but even regardless on the other podcast, we would still love to have you on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, man. No, yeah, I'm, I'm always, I'm, yeah, and like, hopefully we won't leave it as long, you know, this time maybe there won't be like a global pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So again, folks, listen. Faceless. It's a great podcast. Yes. Uh, Blue Light Yokohama would be the first book you want to get into from Nick. Uh, and NicholasObergon.com was your website. Uh, we thank you for coming on. And like you said, next time, hopefully it'll be uh, not so long. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, sir. Thank you, guys. Yep. Check you later. <laughs>